This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 351st episode, those are getting to be quite a mouthful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We have a bunch of news, including a new raptor from South America, which may have been semi-aquatic. Oh, nice. It's not just Spinosaurus that was Mm semi-aquatic. And we have dinosaur of the day, Lynn Hanaikis. And of course, a fun fact. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for helping us make this episode possible. And this week we have some new patrons to thank. And the first one was a gift from Gail for her husband, Jeff, who she utterly adores. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. We have three more new patrons, too. It was a very good week for new patrons. There's also Bodie Cephaly, which is another group. Fantastic. There's Bruce and also Kalosaurus Rex. Some fantastic names. Mm -hmm. And thank you all so much for joining. And then rounding out our shout outs, we've got Neolovenator, Vikram and Karthik, Dynomo, Vincentrosaurus, Saurian Brandy, and Tarkia Tamer. Awesome. Thank you so much. We have reached 200 patrons. We've made it. (laughs) Yeah, we've been talking about it for months now. I think we were at 199 in May and then we like lost a few, Yep. but now we've finally crossed that threshold of 200 patrons. Yeah. So we're celebrating with a YouTube live stream Q&A coming up. Keep an eye out. We'll be announcing the date soon. Once we figure out the date. Yep. (laughs) And then if you haven't already, you can join our Patreon so you can get first dibs at asking us questions. Yep. I'm going to put an announcement before this episode comes out in the announcement thread on Discord for questions. We'll also answer questions that people ask on YouTube if we have time, but we want to make sure we get to all the patron questions. So we're going to separate those out. Plus, then if you are going to forget a question or you can't make it to the Q&A, then it's a place to ask the question and then you can watch it later if you don't have a chance to join and type it into the YouTube chat. Yes. So again, huge thank you. That's amazing. And it basically is like a 350th episode gift. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Thank you all so much for joining and for keeping with us and helping us keep this podcast going for so long absolutely and again if you haven't joined yet and you want to join and ask us questions in the live q a then go to patreon.com slash i know dino so jumping into the news as promised we've got our new unenlagiin dromaeosaurid unenlagiin is so hard to say Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure that's what it is because it's unenlagia but then with Ian at the end, it's Ian. <laughs> this all was published in Papers in Paleontology, written by Arthur S. Brum and others. And as expected for an Unenlagiin Dromaeosaurid, it's from South America. That's where most of them are from, but there are others throughout the world like Australia and Asia. I think that might be it. Mm. But they are spread out to some extent. 
even though it's not surprising that it's from South America, it is surprising that it's from Brazil because they're basically all from Argentina that oh. we know about. In fact, it's the first unenlagiin from Brazil that's not just isolated teeth or a single vertebra. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it helps show the diversity and we get a better picture of what types of dinosaurs are from Brazil. Exactly. Yeah. And it might help figure out a little bit of their behavior too, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Oh, because you can see how they moved around or something? Not quite. It's not quite that good of a find. Oh, okay. But it's got more details about the teeth and like the jaw. Got it. So got it. that's still helpful. I brought that up because this is not dinosaur related, but it was still cool. There's a recent study of a woolly mammoth where they've tracked it looking at its tusks because the tusks of mammoths are similar to, I guess, kind of lags or the rings on trees. Mm -hmm. And they can see within the tusks different geometric markings and things so they could figure out where this mammoth was at different points in time. And they figured out that it walked 43,000 miles or 70,000 kilometers, which is about twice the circumference of Earth. Oh, man. <laughs> but anyway, that was just reminding me because we were talking about behaviors. Yeah. I mean, maybe someday we'll be able to figure that out in dinosaur because like you said, they have lags. Mm -hmm. So potentially you could figure that out maybe that would be hopefully. cool yeah but not with this dinosaur it's not that good of a find <laughs> in that way at least so this dinosaur was found in Peropolis in Minajarais in brazil which is about 400 kilometers north of sao paulo if you're familiar with the area and i'm not gonna do it in miles because if you're familiar with the area you use kilometers the rock it was found in is part of the Baru group. And in this case, that means it's probably from the Maastrichtian, the latest Cretaceous. It might be Campanian, but probably Maastrichtian, which means it's one of the last dinosaurs. It was around at the same time as T-Rex, although at this point they were separated. They mm -hmm. couldn't have co-mingled. Probably for the best for survival, if yeah. not T-Rex. Although it is semi-aquatic, so maybe it could do some swimming. Oh, true. <laughs> it was a long way to swim to get to North America from southern Brazil. But the new dinosaur is named Ipupiara lopai, and Ipupiara is, quote, the one who lives in the water, and that refers to a Tupian myth about an, quote-unquote, aquatic creature. Mm. And that's all I could find out about it, because... Tupian languages are a group of about 70 languages in South America, and the authors didn't give the original word or the language, so I'm just using a Latin pronunciation. It's the best I could do. Then the species name, Lopaai, is after Alberto Lopa, who originally found the specimen probably in the 1940s or 50s, but it's not super well documented, so we don't know exactly, although we have a good idea about where it was, because we know where he worked. That's maybe more important than when it was found. Yeah, because we really care about when it was alive, right? which you find out by knowing where it was found. And even though for us, being found in the 1940s and 1950s is a while ago, it really makes no difference when it comes to a fossil. Yep, that's true. So the find includes a partial right maxilla and a partial right dentary. Lots of partial happening here. <laughs> in other words, it's part of the right snout and the right jaw. And it includes some teeth, at least it does in the maxilla. The maxilla piece is 79 millimeters long, 23 millimeters tall at the back, well, 15 millimeters tall at the front, so it sort of slopes down, mm. and about 7 millimeters thick, which makes it about 3 and an eighth by 1 by a quarter inches. <laughs> 
I tried to do it in fractions this time. The dentary is even smaller. It's only 59 millimeters long, 14 millimeters tall, and eight millimeters thick. So it's about two and a quarter by a half by a quarter inch. So both of these would easily fit in your hand, probably the palm of your hand, maybe extend a little bit onto one of the fingers, do depending we, on the size of your palms. Do we know if this is an adult? Nope. Okay. Because they don't have any lags or anything. Mm -hmm. And they don't have, since it's just a couple isolated skull bones, we don't have any of the places where they would have fused together. So we can't see, you know, if they fuse together as an adult would. But the size of it is roughly in the ballpark of the size of an adult individual. So it could be a larger juvenile. It's not like an embryo or like a neonate or probably under one year old. So it was alive for a little while, mm -hmm. at least we could say, unless it's a super weird anomaly that grew crazy fast. Unfortunately, or maybe I should say tragically, the specimen was at the National Museum in Rio. Oh no. And quote, the specimen was not recovered and is here considered as lost, oh, end quote. And it's a holotype. Yeah, it's the first dinosaur holotype I've heard that was destroyed in the 2018 fire at the National Museum in Rio. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge bummer. Yeah. We heard about another fossil that was being prepared during the fire. And because it was being prepared, it was in a different area. So I was hoping that since this one is just now being named, that means it was being prepared. Mm -hmm. But my guess is it had already been prepared and had gone into the collections and they had finished documenting it and everything. And therefore it was susceptible to the fire. At least they documented it. Yes, that is a huge upside. So fortunately, there are some really great pictures of Ipupiara. And they were actually about to submit the paper when the fire occurred. Mm -hmm. So that means they had, you know, all the all their ducks were in a row. They had all the pictures, all the measurements, all the comparisons to other fossils. Oh, so they just waited a while after the fire. I think so. I think it threw them off mm -hmm. when it when the fire happened. Or maybe they were waiting to see if they could find it. Right. And they wanted to say in the paper whether or not they still had it. Because you always say where it's housed. Yeah. And if they don't know if it's housed, mm -hmm. they, they might have wanted to wait to see if it, if they could find it first. That makes sense. And then you've got it in the record. This one has been lost. Yeah. And they did say that it hasn't been recovered and it's considered as lost. So I guess there's still a chance that it could be found. I mean, it is very small, right? Mm -hmm. It's like looking for a playing card, more or less, or two playing cards in a big pile of rubble. Mm -hmm. So maybe it could be found in the future, but I don't know. If they think it's lost, it's probably lost. Mm -hmm. And fossils are really fragile too. So it doesn't take much to break something small like that into too many pieces to be able to figure out what it was originally. Unfortunately, I don't think they did a digital 3D scan of it. There wasn't a reference to it in the paper. I was really hoping that might be on there. And in this case, it's actually pretty unfortunate because one of the unique things about it are the teeth. And because the teeth are partly rooted, right? And they're like in the jaw, they recognize that there was one root embedded, but without a CT scan of it, you can't really see the details of that root and you can't see the details of the other teeth once they're below that jaw, what we have pictures of. And you know, you're also missing some details about the cross section and some stuff like that, mm -hmm. which we probably won't ever have, unfortunately. But we do have really good pictures of the teeth, which means that if we find other teeth, and we might already have them because they found isolated teeth in Brazil before. You we, can match them. Exactly. And maybe we can just say these are Ipupiara teeth, and we can use those for our comparisons. 
Interestingly, one of the most unique things about the teeth isn't the teeth themselves, but it's that they're widely spaced. In other words, the portion of the maxilla, which is about three inches long, only has about seven tooth sockets, three with teeth in them, but you can see where the other ones were. And there's basically a gap in between the teeth that's larger than the tooth itself. Huh. So it's not like a T-Rex or a Velociraptor or something where it's like constant teeth in a row. There's a bigger gap and it looks almost, to me, more like an ichthyornis type tooth placement. Is that why they think it's aquatic? It might be one of the reasons. <laughs> it sure, certainly has more of a fish-like. It doesn't have a slicing through meat look to the teeth. Mm -hmm. It has more of a grabbing things look to the teeth. And it did have way more teeth than just seven teeth in the maxilla because that partial maxilla that we have is probably only about a third of the tooth-bearing part of the maxilla. Basically, it's only the part of the maxilla that's in front of all of the fenestrae in the skull. So it's like way in front of that first hole. So it's a pretty short segment of it. But it is most of the height, if not all of the height of the maxilla. So you get a lot of details about how tall the snout was. And, you know, based on these teeth, we can see the teeth spacing and we have the teeth themselves. So it is really useful. So on to what makes the teeth unique. Epupiara has fluted teeth, as they're called, hmm. which means there are vertical ridges on the teeth. I basically thought all theropods and dinosaurs had these because I'm just so used to seeing these ridges on the teeth. And it is a common trait among Unenlagiines. Specifically, all of them have two or more flutes on their <laughs> teeth. It's also in lots of other theropods, but there are some dinosaurs that don't have them. However, Epupiara does not have carinae or sharp ridges like some theropods do. I always think of T-Rex when I think of carinae because they have that really, it's like, you know, we describe it as a banana shaped tooth, mm -hmm. but then it has this serration line yep. that's just super harsh down the side and it's... It's meant for chomping. Yeah, and slicing. That's how you get both. You get like a big tooth and then you put that carinae with serrations on it. And then you can do both. But Epupiara does not have those carinae, so it doesn't look like it was slicing much food. And in fact, Epupiara doesn't have any serrations at all. So it's basically a spear as a tooth more than anything. Another clue to the fishy eatingness of Epupiara. Mm -hmm. However, that lack of carinae is another trait common with Unenlagines. So it might also hint at Unenlagines in general. Maybe eating some fish. Oh, so another group in addition to spinosaurids. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yes. And just like spinosaurids, it could be that some of them are more aquatic than others. Like they talk about maybe Baryonyx wasn't as aquatic as, say, Spinosaurus. So then you can get that kind of thing. Like maybe Pupiara was more aquatic than Udenlagia, for example. That's just a crazy random guess <laughs> of conjecture. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Epupiara's teeth also have a central groove which runs the length of the tooth and it gives the tooth a figure eight cross section, which sounds really cool. But unfortunately, I couldn't find a picture of the tooth from the point down mm -hmm. or a CT scan of the cross section or anything. So I hope this is documented somewhere because now the teeth are gone. Right. But that sounds really interesting that it's a deep enough groove that it actually gives it sort of a figure eight shape. Yeah. It's weird. The teeth are also laterally compressed as expected for a meat-eating dinosaur. Not necessarily expected for a fish-eating dinosaur, though. Although they're not nearly as laterally compressed as 
other dromaeosaurids in general, and they're not quite as wide as, say, like a spinosaur. So it's not a full cone shape. Like I said, it's got that figure eight cross section and then the the eights, the eight parts of it, the bulbous parts are also a little bit squished in Mm -hmm. from side to side. In general, its teeth are similar to Ostroraptor because they are both less compressed than usual. And again, that might indicate that it ate fish. As another reason that they named Epupiara for the Tupian myth about an aquatic creature is because it might have been an aquatic creature. Mm-hmm. Some of the other potential fish-eating clues are that it was found with a fish jaw. Oh, yeah, that makes sense then. How did that fish jaw get there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it's sort of circumstantial, you mm-hmm. would say, if it was a court case, because it was just found near it. It's not like it was found in its gut contents or anything right. like that, because all we have is a jaw. So it's And like with taphonomy, you don't know for sure. Exactly. It could just mean that it got buried at sea or in a flood or something like that. And of course, there could be a fish nearby for any number of reasons, but it's some piece of evidence at least. Unfortunately, that fish jaw was also lost, so we can't look at it for any kind of comparison. Like I said, other close relatives, other Unanlagines, have been presumed to be semi-aquatic, including Ostroraptor, which it has similar teeth to, although Ostroraptor has more conical teeth than Upupiara, so it's more on the conical side of the spectrum than the compressed side. I think this one is roughly 60%. They basically said the ratio is more than, I think, two-thirds one dimension to the other. So it's like almost a cone. It's like two-thirds of the way (laughs) to a cone, which is way more than if you've ever seen a velociraptor tooth, which almost looks like a knife. They're very narrow. It's more like 20%, you know, five times as long as it is wide. Mm. They also cite the dromaeosaurid Microraptor, which was found with gut contents, although Microraptor is a fairly distant relative from Epupiara, and Halskaraptor, which is an Unanlagiid, but not an Unanlagiin. Unanlagiins are like a smaller subset of Unanlagiids. Mm-hmm. And Halskaraptor, I remember talking about it being semi-aquatic. Yes. And Halskaraptor also has pretty similar teeth, so that's another connection to its maybe aquaticness. There's one thing the authors didn't mention, and that's that the maxilla is pretty short vertically. And because of that, it gave it a long, narrow appearance of its snout, which I think makes it look fairly similar to Spinosaurus. It's got that long, narrow snout, mm-hmm. or also like a crocodile or a gharial or something. And with those conical teeth that are spaced out a little bit more, certainly has the general appearance of something that might eat fish. And when they did their statistical analysis of the teeth, they even found some similarities between Epupiara and Spinosaurus and the way the flutes were near the crown. They were like, oh, it has some similarities to Spinosaurus, we, but we just think it's coincidence almost. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe it isn't. Maybe that's really important. Maybe, or maybe it's convergent evolution. Yeah. Something about the way they were eating gave them these similar features to their teeth. Mm-hmm. Unlike Spinosaurus, though, Epupiara would have been a very fast runner. They have the feet of a typical dromaeosaurid, and then they even have sort of additional adaptation that could make them run a little bit faster. So that means in addition to fish, they likely ate invertebrates and quote-unquote small terrestrial vertebrates, in other words, mammals, (laughs) but also lizards and maybe baby dinosaurs, whatever else they could catch. Whatever was easy enough. Yeah. 
And that's generally true, right? We talk about how nothing passes up an easy meal. Mm-hmm. I know I don't pass up an easy meal. That's why I <laughs> eat all the leftovers in the fridge. <laughs> that's true. You'd be a very well-adapted dinosaur that way. <laughs> but you don't like eating raw meat, unfortunately. No, but if I was a dinosaur, I'm sure my taste would change. That's true. <laughs> but it is interesting because the authors pointed out that even though Ipupiara looks like it was a fast runner, and so do other Unanlagiines, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're running fast on land. Because if you're trying to catch fish, and say you're scampering around the water or something, trying to catch fish, that could be useful on a shore or another environment too. You don't necessarily have to be running around on land in order to catch things. It could be useful to have quick feet, even if you're standing in the water a lot of the time. There's no official size estimate of Ipupiara, which is not surprising because we only have a couple of tiny pieces of its head, but it's probably somewhere in between Velociraptor and Deinonychus based on the overall dimensions of it. But again, like you said earlier, we don't know if this was an adult or a juvenile. So that's sort of just this individual was probably around that size. Says nothing about the maximum size. In other words, it's probably less than about three meters or about 10 feet long, just as a very rough ballpark. Phylogenetically, it's a sister taxa of Buitreraptor, which has very similar wide spaces in between its teeth. And there are some details about its jaw measurements, which are really technical, that have a lot in common. So the computer spit out Ipupiara and Buitreraptor in their own little group together. And in the principal component analysis of its teeth, Ipupiara was closest to Dromaeosauridae, also known as raptors, although it's outside of the existing space. So it's sort of sitting off to the side. So it's closest, but it is definitely unique in its characteristics. One last detail about this paper that I found really interesting is they actually mention another new dinosaur in it, which was informally named Lopasaurus, also after Alberto Lopa. Oh, is it a similar dinosaur? It might be the same dinosaur. So (laughs) it's a specimen of three metatarsals or foot bones. But unfortunately, the only record is a drawing of that partial foot. Mm. It is a good enough drawing to identify it as a dromaeosaurid and probably an unenlagian or probably within unenlagian A. Unfortunately, these fossils were also lost at some point, not due to a fire, more due to... Just got lost among other fossils. Yeah, and they got inherited by another paleontologist. And then after that paleontologist died, no one could find them. Mm. So they're probably gone. It's possible they'll turn up again. The reason they might be from the same dinosaur is because the bones were found by the same person in roughly the same place. Right. And they look like they're from the same group. But it's totally different bones, so you can't tell. Yeah, and we don't have a documentation of exactly where they were found. We don't have like a... Right, so you don't know if it's the same specimen even. Yeah. You might not know even if they were found close together because there's so many missing other bones. Mm -hmm. Unless they were found really, really close, then you might assume it. But in this case, we, we really just don't know. Especially because there's no overlapping material. You know, it's part of a foot and part of a jaw and maxilla. They're very far apart. And then, of course, the fact that both specimens are gone certainly doesn't help either. You can't compare the rock itself or do any chemical analysis. But even though we don't have the original fossils, it does help to fill in some details about Unenlagiana and also supports that idea that maybe they were fish eaters, potentially semi-aquatic. 
They suggest that people might be able to compare some of these bones of different Unenlagiens to some of the wading birds, try to piece together just how semi-aquatic they are. I hope that happens soon. I love a good semi-aquatic dinosaur. Me too. It's amazing to think that with all the crazy creatures in the Mesozoic waters, that dinosaurs ever ventured into it. Like I would, there's no way. I don't like going in the Cenozoic oceans because I feel like there's too many sharks and things that can attack me. But the Mesozoic waters were a whole other ball game. <laughs> That's true. Especially when it comes to things that eat land creatures. Uh, humans are not the best swimmers. Yeah. Epupiara, at a minimum, was a much better adapted swimmer than humans are. Just the fact that they have that sort of horizontal position where you could raise the head out of the water rather than our weird, like, face goes straight down when we swim. Not, not great. Maybe we can move our heads to the side. <laughs> yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So moving on to other dinosaur news, this one's also from Brazil in Sao Paulo. There's fossils from possibly a titanosaur. It sounded like maybe it was a claw that was recently found off of the side of a cliff. Mm. Yeah, it was found while they were building a highway. So they started by using a hammer and chisel to excavate the fossil. And the fossil is going to be sent to the Museum of Paleontology in Marilia to be cleaned and analyzed. And they found a titanosaur in that area in the past. They found something like 50 pieces of a skeleton in 2009. Nice. 
Yeah, another one that usually you think of Argentina and then now is being found near Sao Paulo. Yeah, pretty cool. That is cool. Also that it's a titanosaur. Yeah, I know someone who likes those a lot. Just one person. There's <laughs> plenty of us out there. That's true. <laughs> in India, in Mahabalipuram, the India Seashell Museum has a new dinosaur museum, and it features an irritator. This dinosaur museum opened in July. They've got 14 mechanical dinosaurs that this says reacts to people passing by them. You know, they roar, they move their tails, they raise their necks. And apparently this museum... They added the dinosaurs for the kids so the kids don't get bored while the adults are checking out the seashells. <laughs> in addition to Irritator, they've got a T-Rex and Velociraptor. This seashell museum, it opened in 2012, and it features the personal collection of the father of the proprietor of the museum. The father was a fish merchant who collected shells. So they started this seashell museum and I guess kids weren't impressed enough, so they added dinosaurs. Adults like them, but the kids were bored. <laughs> so they added the dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty great. In Michigan, in the U.S., Battle Creek Binder Park's Children's Zoo got a grant, and they're building a Jurassic Park. It sounded like this is a former zoo, the Children's Zoo, so maybe this Jurassic Park is replacing it. Weren't we just talking about a Jurassic Park? I think it was also Jurassic. I just searched our notes. There's a Jurassic Park in Bedfordshire, England. Yeah, I thought we talked about something similar in the past. If you want a Jurassic Park, you go to Michigan. You got to go to Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> so this Jurassic Park, they're going to have 20 life-size dinosaurs. You will be able to climb some of them. And it goes along with this Brachiosaurus that's been there the last 30 years. They're planning on having community events and educational programs to go along with the park. And then you can learn how dinosaurs moved and also learn about preserving and protecting nature. It opens sometime this summer. I couldn't find a date, but, you know, we don't have much of summer left. That's true, especially in Michigan. Mm. Nobody's doing Mesozoic. It's way better. <laughs> <laughs> or Mesozoic. Maybe you can start one. Yeah. The Jurassic. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Not nearly as good of a pun. <laughs> Write him a letter. I think I might. <laughs> Actually, I, I know I won't. <laughs> in Milwaukee in the U.S., Johnson's Park Mini Golf is giving their T-Rex a makeover. So we probably talked about this. In 2017, this guy, Chad Covert, bought the statue for $11. Yep. It weighs 13,000 pounds. It was probably a, a story of if you can get it out of here, you can have it type situation yeah, but apparently this guy had tried to buy it in the past for more money and then the deal just never went through <laughs> <laughs> and then the person was like well now i now do you still want it you can have it and he's like i'll take it for ten dollars <laughs> i yeah i don't know the full story of how he got it but it was eleven dollars anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he got negotiated up yeah <laughs> So the renovations to the t-rex they should be done by the end of this year then they're going to be moved to chad's property He's planning on putting it in his backyard. Oh, he lives in a log home in the country, he said. So mm. he's got plenty of space. Probably up north, as us Wisconsinites say. I guess. Yeah, probably. The T-Rex was built for the mini golf course at Johnson's Park back in the 1970s. And the scales were made piece by piece. They had concrete packed onto a trowel and then they'd flip it onto the T-Rex. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds difficult. That is quite an undertaking. 
It seems like quite a deal to get all that hard work for $11. Right. Well, what happened was the park closed down and the T-Rex had just been sitting there for about a decade. So yes, Chad was able to take it apart and tow it away on two flatbeds. And he says he's doing the renovations himself. You got to be careful when you're cutting apart concrete because there's probably some rebar in there. You don't want to end up like the Crystal Palace dinosaurs where water gets in and then rusts it from the inside and then it expands and starts oh, breaking yeah. apart. Lots of things to consider. Yeah. Especially when you're in colder temperatures or wet environments. But keep some good paint on it. It should be okay. Mm-hmm. So in another part of the world, in London, Croydon, you can see brickosaurs. There's 13 life-size toy brick dinosaurs. And based on the article calling them brickosaurs, I'm guessing it's not Lego. Is it a toy brick dinosaurs? Is like facial tissue instead of saying Kleenex? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it is Lego, but they just didn't want to use the company name. Maybe. I mean, they look like Legos, but I know that there are other cheaper non-Legos <laughs> bricks, I guess, out there that yeah. look very similar. True. And I can't tell from a picture. But they, it's really cool. They've got Ankylosaurus, Megalosaurus. They also have non-dinosaurs, Dimetrodon, Lystrosaurus. The brick dinosaurs, they were there until August 16th. So hopefully people got to see them. Nope, just missed them. Yeah. They had something like 500,000 toy bricks. Wow. That made the dinosaurs. Yeah, it looks really cool in the pictures. I like that ankylosaurus. <laughs> I'm sure you're shocked. <laughs> oh, yes. Next in the news, there's this really cool video of a giant dinosaur balloon sculpture being assembled in Turkey in a mall. And they've got now the Guinness World Record for, I think, largest dinosaur balloon sculpture. Or maybe That's... it's largest balloon sculpture. If it's dinosaur balloon sculpture, that's specific and easy to do. Yeah, so they've got this giant T-Rex. It's about 26 feet by 30 feet by 64 feet. So oh. seven, eight-ish meters by nine meters by 20 meters. I take it back. That's not easy to do. <laughs> that is huge. Yeah. That's way bigger than even a real T-Rex. Yeah. Also, I wonder which dimension is which. The 26 by 29, like, okay. is it as wide as it is tall? That's a chunky it's, dino. It's pretty close, yeah, because it's kind of in this crouching position. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then, of course, it's very long. Yeah. It's a biodegradable sculpture. Ooh. It's part of this balloon animal kingdom exhibition. They said it took 150,000 balloons. I'm not sure if that's for the T-Rex or for the whole exhibition. Hmm. Although, based on those dimensions, it sounds like, yeah, that could be just for the T-Rex. So there's more than just the T-Rex? Oh, yeah. They've got Triceratops, Pteranodon, Apatosaurus. They've got a green one and a blue one. <laughs> a Stegosaurus. It's a nice orange color. Spinosaurus. It's brown. Ankylosaurus. And then they have puffins and penguins and parrots and giraffes, lions, <laughs> elephants, lots of other animals. It looks like a pretty cool exhibit. When you said puffins and penguins and parrots, I thought you were going into a little mermaid type <laughs> of oh, plenty. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, oh, my. Puffins and penguins and parrots are oh plenty. <laughs> I guess you could do all my too. <laughs> it's got the nice alliteration too. Mm -hmm. So it took 34 balloon artists and local students. They built it over two days. I don't know how long it'll be there. I don't know how long those balloons last. Yeah, if they're biodegradable, you got to be careful. Start degrading on you. Mm. And then when you take it down, do you just pop all the balloons? Maybe. And then throw them in a compost heap. That could be fun. But yeah, it's cool. The T-Rex is brown. It's got different shades of brown and it's sitting on top of these green balloons. So maybe that's supposed to be like grass or something. Hmm. 
Or ferns. Or ferns. Doesn't look very fernish. Hmm. Because they made some balloon plants to go with the other animals. Gotcha. Yeah, so the video is really cool. It's fun to watch. And then last, found this article in Looper about bizarre dinosaur movies. I posted about this in our Discord, too. There are some weird ones. We've seen in the list My Pet Dinosaur. That was not even that weird. No. We've seen much weirder. Oh, yeah. There's another one in there called Adventures in Dinosaur City, and that one sounded familiar to me. The premise is three kids get transported to the TV series Dinosaurs, like the Jim <laughs> Henson series, and the dinosaurs in it, they do kind of look like those characters. There's a picture, and they look like they have a scarier version of Robbie and Charlene. Hmm. Apparently, the show's from the 90s and 2000s. Maybe it was on the Disney Channel. Probably. So they'd have the rights. Yeah. And then I hadn't really heard of the other movies on the list, but there's a Return to the Lost World, which is a sequel to the silent film The Lost World, but specifically it's a sequel to the 1991 adaptation of it, which I didn't know there was one. We only saw the original. The original was super good. I remember the 2009 Land of the Lost, similar to The Lost World. I think it basically was The Lost World, which was really bad. <laughs> the silent film was way better than that one. Yeah. Yeah, the silent film was cool. And seeing the animation in the silent film, I liked that part. I hope they did stop motion in the 1991 version. I don't know. I didn't look it up. Probably not. But the sequel, Return to the Lost World, it's about saving the Lost World from, quote, a diabolical oil operation that inadvertently triggers a volcano which could destroy the area and its inhabitants. That's super weird. Mm-hmm. Oil exploration and causing a volcano to erupt. Yeah. I feel like if... Drilling a hole caused a volcano to erupt. That volcano was probably about to erupt anyway. Reminds me a little bit of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Yeah, it does save some of those like dinosaurs from the volcano. Yeah. Maybe there's some gems on there for the old watch parties. Maybe. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Lynn Hanikis, which was a request from Elrex via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was an alvarosaurid theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Inner Mongolia, China, in the Ulan Suhai Formation. And it's pretty cute. It had short arms, long legs and tail, and a long gated head. Its body type is similar to Gallimimus, but it's much smaller and it has just the one finger on each hand. So it's small. It's got a 2.8 inch or 7 centimeter long femur. Oh, that is small. Yeah. It's estimated to weigh about one pound. Or 450 grams, which is roughly the same as a parrot. That is tiny. I'm just imagining a Gallimimus shrunk down <laughs> yeah. to like the size of a parrot, which I can't fathom. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Gallimimus proportions don't really scale right for that. I guess if you cover it in feathers, then that would help. Yeah, it does look fuzzy in the paleo art. It's got much shorter arms than Gallimimus too, because it's an alvarosaur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So especially weird. I think its head's a little more elongated too, but just the general body shape reminded me, especially because there's all these pictures of it running or depictions of it running. So Lin Hanaikis was described in 2011 by Xing Shu and others. They found a partial skeleton, including the forelimb, part of the pelvis, vertebral column, and nearly complete hind limbs. The type species is Lin Hanaikis monodactylus. <laughs> And that genus name means Linha Claw. It refers to Linha, the city near where the fossil was found. And the species name means single finger. 
And that name refers to it being the, quote, only known functionally monodactyl non-avian dinosaur, according to the original paper. Huh. That is surprising, because I consider most alvarosaurids to be functionally monodactyl. So, it's the first known alvarosaurid to have only the one digit, the one finger, and it's Mm -hmm. specifically the second digit. Digit number two. Yep, digit number two. Other alvarosaurids have a large second digit and then very short third and fourth digits, but they couldn't use those outer fingers for anything. Yeah, that's just weird because they, your quote was only known functionally mm-hmm. monodactyl. So they're also functionally monodactyl. They're just not actually monodactyl. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird to throw functionally in there. Should have just been the only known monodactyl. I suppose. Dinosaur. I suppose. Maybe it's because you could maybe do something with these little stubby fingers. I don't know. Maybe. Or this one actually does have maybe a tiny stub of something else, or they couldn't rule out that it had a tiny stub somewhere else. This one does not. Well, it had a reduced third metacarpal that connects the wrist to the fingers, Mm -hmm. but there were no finger bones. It tapers off, and it was too small to support a finger, so they know for sure Hmm. just the one finger. Interesting. Yeah, it's hard to rule out the absence of something, but that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Uh, No fourth metacarpal was found, but since that third metacarpal is so short and didn't have finger bones, Linhanigus probably didn't have a fourth metacarpal. Probably, yeah. Because a lot of times they lose the first one and then have a big second one, but it doesn't, they're usually weird gaps. Yeah. (laughs) They come back. So Linhanigus is the most basal parvicursorine, which is a subfamily with large second digits. And it helps show mosaic evolution in alvarosauroid hands since later alvarosaurids had more digits, mm-hmm. even if they were small and maybe not able to be used. So that helps show the complexity of theropod hand evolution because theropods, they started with five fingers, then they went down to three, and then sometimes two, like T Rex, and then sometimes one, like Linhanicus. <laughs> and Mononicus. <laughs> yep. Linhanigus may have eaten insects and then used its claws to dig around ant and termite nests. Its palms face down, so that would have helped with digging. In 2011, Gareth Dyke and Darren Nash questioned the paper about how it didn't really include European alvarosauroids and also suggested Linhanigus was not distinct enough to be different from Parvicursor, the similar small dinosaur from the Burungoyat formation. It was named in 1996. They said the only difference clear to them was, quote, a slight discrepancy in size. Xingxu and others responded. This all happened the year it was published. That's all in 2011. They responded to all of the points. Basically, they said they didn't agree. And they said Linhanicus had a number of features that made it distinct, including some proportional differences, like Linhanicus had this longer metatarsal number three than Parvicursor. They also said, Parvicursor had only been briefly described, and a more detailed comparison would probably show even more differences between the two dinosaurs. Mm, that makes sense. Yep. So other animals that lived around the same time and place as Linhanicus included theropods, ankylosaurs, ceratopsians, small mammals, and lizards. And our fun fact of the day is a little bit of a rabbit hole I went down about holotypes, because there was the Epupiara that was named after the holotype was destroyed. So I was wondering, like, how does that work out? So basically, the requirements for naming a new type, also known as a holotype, can vary quite a bit depending on the type of animal and plant and what's available to be described. 
So in 2017, the ICZN published Declaration 45, allowing the naming of holotypes for animals that don't have any material available. In other words, they're completely lost or destroyed. Oh, that's good for, like, we just said the fire in 2018. Yeah, for you pupiara. Mm -hmm. They say, quote, the author should provide extensive documentation, e.g. multiple original high-resolution images, DNA sequences, etc., of potentially diagnostic characters as completely as possible, end quote. The first time I know this was used was with Amphicelius, when it turned into Marapunisaurus in 2018, and then again with E. pupiara this year. I'm sure it's happened with non-dinosaurs, but we only pay attention to dinosaurs, so that's what I know about. But I think that end of it where they say they need to be documented as completely as possible leaves a lot of room open for interpretation because Marapunisaurus was only based on drawings and 100-plus-year-old drawings and measurements at that. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's as completely as possible, but their example of multiple original high-resolution images and DNA sequences, not even remotely close. That's just ideally, if you can have that. Yeah, but it makes me wonder, like, if you have nothing, if everything is completely destroyed, can you say, well, I have nothing I have no images, I have no drawings, I don't have anything at all, but I remember what it looked like. I'm still doing it as completely as possible. Is that still allowed? I don't know. It seems like the Maripunisaurus was a bit of a stretch, but I do see how Epupiara was definitely valid because it does have multiple high-resolution images. It's similar to how a lot of people compare new dinosaurs to existing dinosaurs because a lot of times they don't have access to the original material anyway, even if it does exist in a museum somewhere. They're basing it on the original paper. So it makes sense. But there are some other really interesting things that the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature, or ICZN, requires. So one of them is that you have to use the 26 letters of the Latin alphabet, which is why you never see accents or apostrophes or Cyrillic characters or anything like that. Although they are very often Latinized from Greek or local languages. That is allowed completely. And it needs to be binomial, meaning there's the genus and the species. And it has to be published in, quote, numerous identical and durable copies or widely accessible electronic copies with fixed content and layout, end quote. Hmm. And I think that fixed layout requirement is why pretty much every online journal seems to offer a PDF because PDFs are fixed layout. Mm -hmm. And that's a requirement for some reason. <laughs> no maybe, EPUB. <laughs> maybe because it seems less like you can make updates. Yeah. Or it's more consistent that way. Yeah. So you wouldn't have a formatting mistake where it's like as shown below and then it ends up being above or on a different page or mm -hmm. something. But I don't know. I wonder how long that requirement will stick around because it's still kind of weird that every site has the PDF option when usually you just view it in the browser, which isn't fixed layout. But then there's always a button somewhere if you look around to get it as a PDF because they have to offer that if they want the description to be valid. Weirdly, though, there is no requirement for peer review anywhere in the specification, Oh, which is crazy to me. All it says is that the publication, quote, must be issued for the purpose of providing a public and permanent scientific record, end quote. So if you publish a book and you intend it to be a permanent piece of the scientific record and it's actually published and, you know, like housed in multiple places, then that counts as the naming of a new creature. 
I guess that's how some of the hadrosaurs we talked about in last episode got their name. Yeah, we've talked about things one, yeah. getting named in books, and I always thought, like, that's weird that it was named in a book and it wasn't peer-reviewed. But it's got a fixed content and layout. It does, and it was intended to be a permanent part of the scientific record. So they do have a long list, though, of things that don't count, including for most years, mimeographs and CDs. In the heyday of mimeographs and CDs, they allowed them with like certain requirements. Like if you put a CD in like five places across the world, <laughs> almost like one of those old treasure hunt stories, then that counted. Also, if it's just a photo or a microfilm or an audio recording or a label on a specimen, a proof, a preprint, and then weirdly, also meeting materials, including abstracts, presentations, or posters don't count, nor do online publications of any format unless they're registered with ZooBank and they have that basically PDF associated with them. But again, you can just publish a book apparently, and then that counts. It's super weird. The ICZN also has some recommendations. They say you should, quote, ensure that names are chosen with their subsequent users in mind, end quote, which they break down into a few pieces like names should be euphonious, <laughs> also known as pleasing to the ear. This one actually gets brought up a lot with dinosaurs since there are a lot of really awkward sounding names and also really difficult to read in a lot of cases, which makes it seem like it wasn't chosen with subsequent users in mind. But my question is, pleasing to whose ear? It's one of those ear-pleasing is in the ear of the beholder sort of situations. The names are also supposed to be easily memorable. I think most dinosaurs check that box because I'm interested in dinosaurs. I never have trouble remembering them. Mm -hmm. They're not always easy to pronounce, but they're easy to remember. Yes. <laughs> they're not supposed to be likely to be confused with other taxa or common words. So you shouldn't name a dinosaur like yes or is sort of like who's on first. You don't want that situation happening. Mm -hmm. They're also supposed to be compact, which I find hilarious because I can't think of very many dinosaur names or names of anything in general, genera or species, which are compact. But I guess, you know, if you have to skip one of these, maybe compact is the one to skip since they can't be repeated. And then last is they should be inoffensive, which I guess means it shouldn't be profanity. Mm. I think it's really hard to meet all of these, though. One of the only ones I could think of which is very compact is E, which is memorable, compact, and inoffensive. But it's a very common word in the local language. So I would say that it is likely to be confused with other taxa or common words. So it's it's hard. It's hard to get a good one. I guess that's why so many names end in source. Mm-hmm. Because that makes it harder to confuse with common words. Yep. And it's memorable. True. Yeah. I guess that some of the most popular dinosaur names are compact, like T-Rex, mm -hmm. although we're making Tyrannosaurus shorter, but it definitely makes it easier to remember and more accessible for subsequent users, as they would put it. The ICZN also recommends giving an etymology, but there is absolutely no mention of pronunciation. And I would argue that a pronunciation guide would greatly aid subsequent users. So I think that should be added as a requirement. <laughs> Some papers do have pronunciation. They do. And I appreciate them very much when mm -hmm. they do. Outside of the ICCN, names do usually have to pass peer review. Again, not always. Meaning that the material needs to be convincingly unique as well, although that's not a part of the ICCN purview. And that means that there's lots of comparisons to other similar plants and animals. And since I mentioned plants, 
I just want to quickly mention something crazy because I, I discovered something nuts, but I need to set it up first. So the organization formerly known as ICBN or the International Code of Botanical Nomenclature has a different set of rules, although they are pretty similar. And then in 2011, they changed their name to the International Code of Nomenclature for Algae, Fungi, and Plants. And then they just abbreviated it ICN because I guess they didn't want to be the ICNAFP. Keep it concise and memorable. Yeah. The reason I want to bring them up is because usually when you have type specimens, they have to be dead. And that's so you can permanently preserve them and you can compare them indefinitely into the future. But the ICN allows for living cultures of fungi and algae if they're preserved, quote, in a metabolically inactive state, hmm. which is really interesting. And their examples are freeze-dried or deep-freezed. Interesting. So in both freeze-drying and deep-freezing, they're presumably flash-frozen to avoid ice crystals forming, which damages cells. It's a very common practice that's done all over the place. That's what you do if you're going to like preserve, cryopreserve some living tissue of any sort. Mm -hmm. So that's a deep freeze. But freeze-drying is really interesting. And the reason it's called freeze-drying is because it passes through a frozen state on the way to drying. So it takes one more state than heat-drying in a way. I mean, heat drying, also known as dehydrating, you basically just warm something and essentially evaporate all of the water off. So you just have water going from a liquid to a gas. But in freeze drying, you freeze the water by dropping the temperature and then you drop the pressure to sublimate the ice. So rather than going from liquid to gas, you go from liquid to solid to gas. And basically the advantage there is when you freeze it really fast, you can maintain the structure and you can retain some of the other properties of the material that you would lose if you just like boiled off the water basically. But it's super weird. I have no idea how algae or fungi survive being freeze dried. That is nuts to me. Right. Or how you could revive them. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, they, Usually when you freeze dry something, there's less than like 4% of the original water remaining. So the idea that something is so desiccated and then you just add the water back to it, I guess, and it pops back to life, that's nuts. That's totally nuts and amazing. <laughs> it would make studying them way easier, though, if you could just like bring the holotype back to life. Mm -hmm. Because... One of the other things you can do with holotypes that you can culture is you can store multiple copies of the holotype, or they call them isotypes, all over the world. So they basically just sample off bits of the holotype and then freeze dry them or freeze them or otherwise preserve them in different places around the world. And then if one of them gets destroyed, you've got a great backup somewhere else that you can culture again if you wanted to, I guess. But even though that part's really easy, the peer review on plants seems very difficult. At a minimum, the authors need to demonstrate a species is unique within a genus. And for example, astragalus, it's spelled the same as that bone in a dinosaur. No, and it's a plant. <laughs> yeah, it's a subset of legumes, but it has over 3,000 species. So that means anyone who adds a new species to that genus now has to compare it to 3,000 others. Well, that would take a long time. It does, yeah. Because usually with dinosaurs, they compare it to others in the family or whatever. And it's like 20, 30 maybe that people might say it's the same as. It just seems very tedious. But in general, wouldn't it be tedious because you still need to make sure that whatever name you choose isn't already being used. We've talked mm -hmm. about with dinosaurs, there's a dinosaur name and then they had to change it later because it turned out it was the name of a beetle or a plant. Yeah. Well, you don't technically, since the ICN is a separate organization, plants and fungi and stuff 
can have the same name as a dinosaur, for example. But you're right with beetles, since they're all animals, mm. they can't have the same name. But yeah, when there are so many more plants, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of overlap. And then all 3,000 of those species too have to have a unique species name, mm-hmm. which would be tricky to do. I'm sure you get creative. Yeah. And one last little weird bonus fun fact is that the naming organizations can be pretty rigid about their names. So there is that rule that the name should be inoffensive. And there was a beetle that was named after Hitler in 1933, a Hitleri. (laughs) And then after World War II, there was a proposal to change the name because who wants a thing named after Hitler? Nobody. But it was rejected by the ICZN because they said the original name didn't break any of the rules. And I guess the not causing an offense is technically a recommendation. Maybe that was a recommendation that came later. I'm not sure. Or maybe it only meant swear words. Oh, yeah, that could be. That's what they meant by not causing offense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I thought that was kind of a weird anecdote about binomial nomenclature. Yeah, (laughs) it is a weird one. And you've covered lots of weird stuff, too, like Ultrasaurus versus Ultrasauros and Mm -hmm. all these confusing things that happen. I think the names are just going to get weirder the more things we find that need new names. Yeah. But it was surprising to me that technically you're allowed to name a holotype for an animal that doesn't have material available, whether or not it was described at all before it disappeared. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening and thank you for helping us reach 200 patrons. Yay! If you want to join our community and take part of our celebratory live Q&A event, then check out our page, patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.